Go to a welcome. Uh, we're going to be starting a new Bible study today. And after talking with some folks in here, kind of had some ideas thrown out. And uh, I think the consensus was from all who participated that we kind of jump into Colossians, which I think is a good follow-up to Pastor's prior class here. Of course, it's all of Paul's writing and, and Paul gives us our Lord's doctrine, which is consistent in a lot of his epistles. So we're going to see some of that um, as we go through Colossians. Um, now, before we again, begin, if you look at Colossians, I, I first looked at it and thought, oh my gosh, you, it's only four chapters. I counted them up, and I think that there's only about 95 verses. But as I kind of started looking through this, I don't want us to think just because it's short that it doesn't mean that this book is not significant for uh, Paul's theology. And in fact, this, this book here, as we're going to see, is just packed with a lot of great theology and really our, our Lord's doctrine, and especially its, its Christology that we're going to be looking at, and that's the study in the, of the person and the work of Jesus. And uh, I really can't wait to get into this because there's just really a lot to unpack in these 95 verses, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing with you all doing this with you guys. Um, so before we begin, begin here, why don't we start with an invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So I think what I'll do is start, just kind of give a, a brief background on what's going on here, why Paul writes this letter, uh, kind of what's going on with this church, who's involved, and kind of what the major themes are that we're going to be seeing, and how the Colossians can really be uh, divided up, which I have in a handout here, which we'll, we'll go through. Um, so I think with that, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, really the, Paul's focus here in this book is Christology. It's the study in the person, the work of Jesus. And really what Paul does in here, when I'm going to talk about kind of the main theme is Paul expounds upon the relationship of uh, G- Jesus Christ to this created order. Uh, Paul in Colossians really presents Jesus as both um, the creator and the redeemer, reconciler of the universe. So that's kind of the main theme. Uh, because Paul presents Christ in relation to this created order here, He also has a lot to say about the world itself and what we'll see the world itself back then in around A.D. 60 and uh, today as well. We're going to see a lot of the similarities. In particular, though, Paul is really looking at how the believer is to view and to relate to to his creation, to the creation. Now, uh, Colossians depicts Christ is the head of this new creation. And Jesus is the beginning of something new. His work on the cross was an end to the old way, bringing about a new way of being, 
being a human, of relating to God and to the world. Just some fantastic themes. His death and resurrection has created a new family, a new civilization, a new creation. And now we, as were the Colossians were, we're a part of this life. We overcome death now in a new way. There's this newness of life that we're going to see. So really the general theme, if we had to come up with a general theme, I know it's not consistent, I've read some other commentators, but I think mainly the, the general consensus is, of the theme is this, is that Christ is head and Lord of all, and the fullness of God dwells in him. That's kind of the theme. And here in a minute you know why kind of Paul um, is, is addressing this and advancing uh, this very important theme or this topic. Again, Christ is head and Lord of all, and the fullness of God dwells in him, which is Christology, the study of the person and the work of Jesus. So that's kind of what the, th- the big themes are. So before we really delve into the text here, let's, let's do a few more introductory things. Um, in particular, I kind of want to look briefly at really the background on all of this. So um, the background, obviously, is Paul is writing to the Colossians, which Colossa is a town. And if you guys will look at, at the handout I presented, and if anyone's watching online, I uh, want to shoot me an email. I'd be glad uh, to send this to you here, this little handout. If you turn to page two and three, this is the best kind of I could come up with. But I guess this, if we're talking about Colossa, I wanted to kind of, even myself included, look to where this really is. And if you'll notice on, on page two of the handout, I've kind of circled it there. I hope it came out good on your copy, but you see it's here, it's below uh, Laodicea in these areas, and it's in Asia Minor. If you look at uh, the second map I've got down there, it kind of puts it in more perspective. You can see up in the left-hand quarter, you see Italy. I can easily uh, pick out Italy because of the boot. So kind of give you a reference of what we're talking about. Now, this is kind of the old uh, biblical times here. So I thought, well, what is it uh, today, really? And if you look then on page 3, this is kind of a Google Maps of today. And you'll see the little, the little balloon, I guess, pinpoint that I've dropped in there. So really, this Colossus is kind of in what we know now is, is the Turkey area. Uh, it's, Greece then would be in between uh, this Turkey and Italy. So this is kind of the area you see uh, Crete down lower. So this uh, really where Paul was in these areas uh, during his ministry. Um, Crete, Colossae, it's about 120 miles east of Ephesus in Central Asia. Now, I was doing a lot of research on this about Paul and Paul's connection. You know, we know Paul had a bunch of different connections with cities close to this area, Ephesus and and, and whatnot. But really looking at it from a historical point of view and the commentaries that I read and the, the historians that looked at this, I guess really the consensus is, is that we really don't have much of an indication that Paul himself actually was ever in Colossae which is interesting, and I didn't know that. And in fact, 
and we'll see some of it evidenced in, in the text that we go through. Um, I'm not even sure, and biblical scholars aren't sure that Paul really even personally knew any of the people in this area. Um, and uh, so he's writing to people really um, that he doesn't really have a first-hand knowledge of, unlike some of the other churches that, in, in areas that was, he was in. Um, just a, a name here I want to bring up, and if you turn in your Bibles uh, real quick. So in, in just at the beginning of Colossians, in chapter 1, if you can see in, in uh, verse 7 here, there's, there's a mention of an in, individual named Epaphras. You see that in, in 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And again, if you will look in... Um, chapter 4, towards the end of the book. In verse 12, we see this Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greet you always, struggling on your behalf in prayers. So who is this Epaphras? Really, uh, we don't know too much about him. The thought could be that Epaphras was a convert um, of St. Paul and, and, and knew Paul in Ephesus. And then uh, he traveled to Colossae. And uh, it, it's thought that maybe Epaphras actually started this congregation in, in Colossae, um, where he uh, went there to preach the gospel to these people. Um, the ministry of Epaphras was probably an extension of Paul's own ministry. Um, Epaphras was sent to Colossa under the Apostles Paul's supervision to take the gospel to these people on Paul's behalf to this place where apparently for some reason, which is unknown, that Paul himself could not be physically present. So as we get further along into this letter, um, maybe this would explain... Um, really, even though Paul wasn't there, but this was one of Paul's students and really an extension of Paul's ministry, why Paul has a deep apostolic and pastoral concern um, towards this congregation, which with he never personally visited. But as you'll see, it, it, it appears as though this church in Colossae, it's, it's doing pretty good. Um, the gospel's being presented by Epaphras is coming from Paul and what he's learned. But as we'll see, um, apparently there is some kind of a false teaching or something going on um, within the church, um, which is creeping in. And Paul will give more hints of this in chapter 2 as we go along as to actually uh, what's going on there. And we'll cover that. But in terms of what's go going on within the church here in Colossae, there's not a real consensus of actually what's going on and who's starting it. But there's bits and, peoples in, bits and pieces of this book 
that may shed some light on what's going on. Um, so even though there's no real consensus on exactly what's happening, uh, most of uh, the commentaries and commentators have looked at this uh, believe that it is kind of some form of Gnosticism. And I'll talk more about Gnosticism as we get uh, more into chapter 2 a bit here. But as I'm sure you all know, I'm sure pa- I know Pastor has mentioned it some, Gnosticism is really um, a Greek movement. It's got very, very many different um, avenues, and you can't really pin Gnostics into one. But Gnosticism uh, is really an emphasis of this secret knowledge. Secret knowledge that's going on. It's uh, in the um, out of the material world and into the spiritual world. Very spiritual, spiritualistic. It has many uh, variants, but the tenets of Gnosticism really required its inherence to neglect or even to deny the incarnation of Christ and to interpret his death and resurrection in some other fashion than as the true events of history. So I think that kind of gives us a hint that uh, that's why most people say it could have been this Gnosticism that, it crushed, that was in the church because really, as I said at the beginning, Paul's theme is really this Christological theme where he expounds upon who Jesus was, the incarnation. Jesus is both creator and redeemer. That's why his theme is such, uh, most people think, is because there is this idea of this Gnosticism which really denies uh, really Christ and what Christ was about. So then, because of this, I guess this crept into this church, this possible form of Gnosticism, um, Epiphras, he apparently is, is trying to battle this, and I guess you can see can't quite get his head around it. And uh, so what Epiphras does is he leaves uh, Colossa, and he goes and visits Paul, who, believe it or not, was in prison during this time. No shock, right? And we'll go through that. So Paul then... He is going to be involved in this, emphasizing that Christ is the head and Lord of all, and specifically is emphasizing this against these Gnostic teachers that was starting to percolate in the church at Colossa. So we have um, Epiphras then, who's here in Colossa, needing to reach out to Paul. So what does he do? He goes to where Paul is. As I said, Paul's in prison. But the problem is, (laughs) when you look at this, we know after reading a lot of the Acts and the number of the epistles, Paul was in prison in multiple locations. And so, we do not know where Paul really was, but we do know, if you'll turn real quick to chapter 4, verse 3. At any time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of, of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul does, um, he does speak of him being in prison. Now, there's three possible locations that Paul could have been. First um, is in Caesarea. Uh, we know in Acts 24, um, Luke writes about the Apostle Paul was in prison in Caesarea for two years in approximately 57 to 58 A.D. 
Another alternative is is Ephesus. Um, In 2 Corinthians 11.23, Paul does mention that he was imprisoned in Ephesus. So, there's two there, but the third is this, is that we know that Paul was in Rome and he was in prison there sometime in approximately A.D. 60 to 61. And in Acts 28, it, it discusses this. So we do know that Paul, around this particular time frame, could have been in three different areas in prison. But the consensus being, although, of course, we don't know, and again, this isn't super important for when we study the certain uh, doctrines that we get from Paul, um, but just by way of background, the consensus probably is that Paul, in fact, was in Rome um, uh, during this time, uh, and that Paul actually wrote to the Colossians um, while in Rome. So on that, then, if we think Rome... Um, the thought would be then that Ephaphras, when this problem does start to percolate within the church, this false teaching, he's trying to deal with it. His immediate uh, thought is, is, I've got to get to Paul. So then uh, Ephesus would have traveled um, from Colossa, probably to Crete, down over to Greece, and Greece up to Rome, and in fact, meet with Paul. And that does happen. Um, Paul, after Ephaphras then meets I get, with Paul to inform him of what's going on, on Paul does draft a, draft a letter. Um, it appears as though Ephaphras doesn't make it back to Colossa. We're not quite sure why, at, the, at least uh, during this time frame. So another individual is mentioned, and we'll talk about him later. Um, it's Tychidius. Uh, Tychidius uh, shows up at the prison, and Paul gives Tychidius this letter, which then Tychidius uh, carries with him and delivers the letter to the church um, in Colossa. So it's kind of interesting from that perspective. Number one, I never knew that. Paul really never knew this church, unlike he knew other churches. But of course, he still reaches out. He has compassion on these people. He wants to help Aphrodite out. And of course, uh, he's concerned with any false doctrine that could be coming to any of the churches in this area. Um, Another individual, too, and we'll talk about it here in a bit, in addition to Tychidius, um, Onesimus is with Tychidius and comes up to Rome and assists Tychidius with delivering the letter to Colossa. Now, if you'll remember that the Onesimus Onesimus was actually the runaway slave in Philemon. And uh, Onesimus had run away from Colossa, but Paul now sends him back to go and join the church and to be helpful to the Christians that are there. And that's mentioned towards the end, and I'll give a little bit more uh, on that as we get uh, through the letter. But... Again, the fascinating thing for me is is that Paul, even though he didn't know these people, um, it, it does show that during this time that the gospel was spreading even beyond Paul's own ministry. Um, and Paul, even though he'd not been there, he never met these people, but he does hear of them, the Colossians, and his heart yearns for them. Um, 
Paul's um, affection was not only for those Christians that he knew or that he personally ministered to, it was for those who were even growing outside of the churches that he was at. And Paul says, um, and we'll get to you that I've heard of, indicating that he really d- didn't know these people, he does want to help them, even though he's never seen them face to face. So Paul wants to serve really the whole world with the, the gift, the gift of the gospel. And it's namely... Uh, it, it, of what Christ, what he's done, who he is, and, and the salvations that he brings uh, for the whole world. So this is kind of really the, the context um, of what's going on um, during the time that this letter was written. Any questions on any kind of that ba- basic historical stuff? And there'll be some other things that we'll address in the letter that'll back up a lot of what I just said here. On that. Okay, that's kind of a, the brief introduction, but I do want to say one thing. Um, just because um, there is some identification of some kind of uh, um, Gnosticism or some kind of false teaching within the, within the church, when we go through this letter, I, I don't want to say that the, then this letter is only applicable to that situation. We need to be careful with that. In fact, talking with Pastor Rody about this yesterday, we had a great conversation on. Um, Sometimes, you know, we could tend to fall in a trap of trying to interpret what a certain um, apostle or something is trying uh, uh, to talk about um, based on really the historical setting they're in. But the problem is, is at the end of the day, we really don't know a lot of the specifics that's going on. So we need to look at this based on Paul is what he's doing is regardless of the particular situation. I can tell you maybe why he wrote the letter, but really at the end of the day, I'm not sitting here saying that this was only for that specific time. And that's why this book is so great, because really what Paul is doing, even though he's writing it to that particular situation, he writes to the world back then and to us today, which is awesome. And we'll see a lot of the stuff that he says is not just regarding that particular situation. It's really who Christ is and what he means for us today, what he did for us. So don't let me lead you astray by giving you any background about, about, you know, we have to know exactly what was going on during that time. Okay, so that's kind of a brief um, introduction to this book. Um, Let's look at the handout one more time here, because I do think it's important just kind of see the big picture then. Now, of course, in your study Bible, we've got this too. We have an outline, um, which is I think is very good. That's on page 2041. Um, I, there's another outline. It's very close here. Um, I thought this one was just maybe a tad bit better, but of course the outline in the, in the study Bible is, is just fine too. So as you can see here on, on page one on the um, handout that I gave, so, um, and I took this out of the Concordia Commentary on Colossians. It's written by Paul Dettering. It's on page 15, if anyone's looking. This is kind of the structure of the outline of what we're going to go through, these four chapters here. It's divided into two parts. It's a part uh, Roman numeral 1 and Roman numeral 2. The first is more kind of a proclamation that Paul does in a preaching. And within this 
uh, first category of proclamation or preaching. Paul, of course, as he does with all of his letters, gives his salutation. I'll go through that here in a bit. And then there's an overture. Overture is an interesting term. Overture is like the beginning of a musical. or what, It sets the stage for the performance. And Paul's always a master of doing this. And he's, of course, a master of doing that here within Colossians, of really setting the stage in his overture of what he wants to write and what he's gonna, his themes are. And within that overture, we've got three little uh, minor points. We've got a Thanksgiving report. Paul offers up a thanksgiving for the Colossians. Um, then he gets into some, uh, some uh, deeper uh, discussions, uh, the source of knowledge and the reason for intercession, why we pray. Here is where we can see some of the elements that Paul might have been uh, dealing with with this um, faction within this church. And then there's a beautiful Christ hymn we'll get into And that's where he really focused on this creation and reconciliation. Then under uh, Roman number number one still, the third part of this proclamation and preaching is Paul's main exposition and resolution. And then there's four parts under that. We've got a ministry of reconciliation. He again addresses true knowledge. Again, knowledge going back to this idea of Gnosticism and their true knowledge. Um, number three, the fullness of Christ. And then four, true freedom. And then part two, it's more advice, counsel. It's kind of given to the Christians and the Christians in their daily life. And we see that under um, subcategory A, which is the Christian life, which Paul addresses. Which again, is going to be very, very uh, pertinent to us today in our lives. And then that's broken up to four subcategories. We've got one, death and life. The put off and the put on. It's like a category of jeopardy, I guess. We'll get into that. Three, you've heard this one, of course. Pastor's been talking about this. The table of duties. So we'll get a little refresher in this on the table of duties. Then number four, watch and pray. And then under B, Paul has some concluding matters. So, really, there's a lot of stuff here. It's going to be really great. Um, Another thing, and and I didn't even realize it was in here. Uh, I did find this Luther on Colossians I printed out, but then I found out that it is also in the beginning um, of the study Bible. And I I want to just give a brief uh, note on on Luther's outline, which is very good. Now, Luther uh, didn't do a, a complete... Um, commentary on Colossians, but of course references a lot um, and then has this kind of short introduction to say about Colossians. So, as you'll see here, Luther writes, Just as the epistle to the Galatians resembles and is modeled on the epistle to the Romans, comprising an outline the same material that is more fully and richly developed in Romans, so this epistle resembles that to the Ephesians, and comprises also and outline the same contents. So we've got some similarities to what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. First, according to Luther, Paul praises and wishes for the Colossians that they continue and increase in faith. He delineates what the gospel and faith are, namely, a wisdom which recognizes Christ as Lord and God, crucified for us, 
which has been hidden for ages, but now brought into the open through his ministry. This is the first chapter. In chapter 2, Paul warns them then against the doctrines of man, which I kind of discuss this possible Gnosticism, which are always contrary to faith. He depicts these doctrines more clearly than they are depicted anywhere else in Scripture and criticizes them in a masterly way. In chapter 3, Paul exhorts them to be fruitful in the pure faith, doing all sorts of good works for one another. And he describes for some various stations in life the works which are appropriate to them. And then in chapter 4, Paul commends himself to their prayers and gives um, then greetings and encouragement to the Colossians. So, good, good, great, great stuff we're going to go. Uh, just one other side note in terms of us kind of looking at this, we're talking about now we've got Paul Luther saying Ephesians and kind of, you know, Paul, as we know, did write uh, 13 epistles. So the question then I had was, well, Luther talks about Ephesians. Where does this epistle? And of course, this isn't, you know, this is kind of what of a consensus is that, uh, you know, out of the 13 letters, this was probably lit, written somewhere in the middle. So it appears that Paul would have written Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, um, Philemon, 2 Thessalonians, and possibly Ephesians before Colossians. So it's kind of the in the this isn't the first or the last. This is in the middle of all of Paul's letters. So Paul, of course, has written uh, numerous other letters before. So as, as we can see, maybe here refining some of his prior uh, theology into the situation here. So as Luther says, we do obviously see themes from other epistles that Paul wrote before and quite frankly after because again all of Paul's epistles aren't necessarily directed to one's specific situation that's the beauty of it that all the epistles are addressed to the world for all time um, until the second coming of Christ and why it's good for us today and all espouse really not Paul's doctrine but our Lord's doctrine not Lutheran doctrine but our Lord's doctrine all right. Any questions there about the opening or kind of where we're going with this? Any questions? All right. So, even though we have a short uh, book here, there's a lot to unpack. So, let's just uh, delve in it if you guys are ready. So, let's start um, with, and I'm going to kind of follow this the same outline here. Uh, that I presented. So first we're going to look at this salutation, the greeting. It's um, uh, chapter 1, 1 and 2. And I'll go ahead and read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Sound kind of familiar, somewhat? You guys heard that's not shocking, right? Now, of course, that's the way that Paul introduces his letter, similar to this. And 
This was really standard uh, for any Greek letter um, early on when they would write. Uh, this was the way of introduction. Um, as you can see here, and Paul does this in the other letters, what does it do? Right off the bat, unlike today, we include the author's name. Paul, right off the bat, is the author. And then there's uh, followed by the addressee, and we see that. So it's from Paul, of course, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa. Uh, now, right off the bat, Paul says that he is an apostle. And what he's doing, I see this, as he's right off the bat, he's qualifying himself. He's letting the, the folks know what he is and who he is and why it would be important for them to read his letter. Well, when Paul says that he is an apostle, what he's doing actually is taking it off of him and he's directing it to Christ. Paul is saying that Paul himself was called by Christ himself. Now, why do I say that? He doesn't really say that. But let's do take a look at this word apostle and where it comes from. Apostle in Greek is apostolos. Now, the, its derivative actually from a Hebrew word, uh, shaliak. And this term, both of these are related to the verb in English, to send. Now, when we look at this development of this term apostle or to send, it does come from the Old Testament Hebrew. Um, a shaliach in the Old Testament was an authorized representative of the individual or group who, who sent him so that the identifying characteristic of the shaliach is his authority. Thus, the rabbis then said to the shaliach, the one sent by a man is the man himself. Therefore, the shaliach had, had to subordinate his will completely to that of the sender. So Christ then, based on this, this terms of how looking at what an apostle is, apostle is the one sent by man, is the man himself, right? And since Paul was sent by Christ, Paul then is speaking on behalf of Christ. In this sense, though, Christ himself was sent with the authority of God the Father. And he shares all that belongs to the Father, Christ does. And we know that in, in uh, John 17, two through, two through 3. Um, in a similar way, the identifying mark of the apostles of Christ was the authority delegated to them by Christ who sent them. That was the apostles. In their commission to preach the word, the apostles had the authority of Christ himself. They had been called by the Lord, and with full submission to his will, they were sent with his authority to proclaim his word. And that's what Paul is advocating right at the beginning of the letter. Now, of course, we know Paul, unlike some of the other apostles, wasn't uh, there at the death, the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul was an apostle. Um, Paul was called to the apostolic office, of course, on the road to Damascus. We know Paul's history, right? Paul, Saul. Paul was one that uh, persecuted the Christians, but he was called directly 
by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Specifically, though, Paul was called to exercise his apostolate, particularly for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles. We know that uh, in Galatians. Pastor talked about in Galatians 1. And, of course, then Paul in in Romans identifies himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. So, with that, seeing kind of the history of what this term apostle means and the significance of it, of course, Paul, right off the bat, is going to refer to himself as an apostle. And Paul is stating that he is a true apostle from God, whose position does not derive from any mere human. His authority has been delegated to him by Christ, Christ who sent him. So the Colossians, and for us for that matter, should really listen to what he says. Any questions on apostle? I'm sure you guys have heard that before. Pastors probably talked about it. Well, that's interesting how the term actually relates to the Hebrew on um, the Shaliach. Um, one other uh, mention here um, is Timothy. We see that in verse 1 here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy. So Paul does mention Timothy, but of course he does not ascribe to Timothy um, the title of apostle. But as we know, um, Timothy was really a beloved co-worker of Paul. And actually, it is believed that also Timothy is one of the co-senders of this letter. And also, Paul doesn't mention um, Ephaphras, who I talked about at the beginning. We know Ephaphras came there. Um, the founding, uh, the founder of this congregation doesn't mention him um, here um, in the salutation. I think the point is probably that it is Paul is just making it clear that he, even though doesn't doesn't know these people personally or wasn't at that church, he is the apostle. Uh, to the Colossians. Okay. Now, I want to look at this. Um, Verse 2 here. Let's go here. Any questions up to this point? Um, We see this. Then Paul when he's going to identify whose his addresses are, he says this, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa. Now, isn't that interesting? Right off the bat, Paul doesn't know these people, never met them. But what does he do? He calls them saints. Saints, uh, Greek word, uh, it can also be translated holy ones. So right off the bat, Paul is recognizing them as holy ones. They're, they're sanctified. Why does, why does Paul say this? Well, Paul, in his other letters, has really espoused and given us this idea that believers are sanctified and that through faith in Christ, they are purified from their sinful condition. This is 1 Corinthians 1-2. through And they are fully acceptable to God through justification. So this is what Paul means here when he addresses them as saints. And that's how he addresses us today. We are saints. Christians aren't saints. We've been justified based 
on what Christ has done for us. So regardless of what's going on in Colossae, Paul addresses them as saints. Then he says, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The address of this letter, the addressees of this letter are in Christ. Paul actually frequently uses this phrase in addressing the Christians in his other letters. In fact, uh, based on count, I didn't do this, but read this, Paul uses this in Christ 170 times in all of his epistles. So it must be important. Paul uses it so many times. So what is this concept of in Christ? When Paul uses in Christ, Paul is describing a harmonious relationship with Jesus Christ and the baptismal incorporation into the body of Christ. It's baptismal language in Christ. This relationship is created by God through our baptism and the gospel. So when Paul says off the bat, in Christ, it's automatically a reference to our baptism. Through baptism, we are in fact in Christ. And Paul further expounds upon this in Romans 6, which is a beautiful passage on baptism. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what baptism is, and that's how we are in Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ our baptism. We've been buried with him. But then we would be raised just as he was. And then I had I couldn't give this up in the in the catechism. We are taught that in baptism the Holy Spirit works in and through baptism to create faith in Christ Jesus, adopting us as children of the Father and making us new creatures in Christ, who now live not according to the flesh but by the Spirit. is that wonderful? So that's why we're in Christ. Our baptism, right off the bat. Any questions on anything that I've covered so far? So in the first two sentences, we've got some uh, pretty significant uh, theology right off the bat, why Paul would call them a saint and why he calls us saints. And then why why he was, uh, the significance of being an apostle. Hey, Vicar. Uh, is Timothy in prison with Paul at this time? Or? You know, I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, and, and I guess when I did some reading on it, there is some dispute on really whether Paul was in prison in Rome. Um, he says prison, but um, I, some tend to think he was on house arrest. That's why he could have guests in. Maybe Timothy was there with him at the time. And that's why um, people could have access to them. So, but, but, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, any other questions? Okay, so we've been uh, through the salutation here. And we'll move on to this overture. And as I said, kind of as we're going through, an overture of a symphony or an opera, opera really... In, introduces either musical themes um, or whatever ideas that will be taken up later in the work. So here, uh, this portion of the Paul's letter introduces themes 
that we will see will be further developed um, in the epistle. And this sounds somewhat exhaustive. I'm going to read through the themes. Uh, we may not touch on any of them, uh, every one of them, but they are significant themes. So when you read through uh, this overture, we hear these themes. Faith in Christ, relationship, what I just talked about. Love of believers for one another. The saints, the holy ones. Hope, the word of God, the gospel, to know and knowledge, servants, ministers of the word, filled or fullness in Christ, wisdom and understanding, patience, joy, inheritance, heavenly versus demonic, authority uh, versus authorities, Rule of God in Christ, forgiveness, Christ's full deity, the image of God, all creatures, Christ's creation of and hence supremacy over the angelic beings, wisdom Christology, Christ's preeminence, uh, preeminence over all things, Christ as head of his body in the church, Christ's resurrection, reconciliation by Christ, and Christ's death on the cross. That's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff to unpack. So that, those are kind of the, the themes that Paul introduces um, in his overture. Okay, so the beginning of the overture then, Paul, um, as you'll see in the outline here, it's this one, it's the Thanksgiving report. Um, verses 3 through 8. Now, as we look at this, it's important to note that this really isn't a thanksgiving prayer as such. But Paul is reporting the actual reasons why he gives thanks to God. And he's doing that here in his letter. Now when we see this, of course, it's no surprise, the content is extremely Christian. It's distinctly Christian. The distinctly Christian nature of the thanksgiving report here by Paul is immediately apparent in the Apostle's designation of the one to whom he prays. And we see that in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's directed towards God and the thankfulness here. Okay. So why don't we go ahead and jump through this. I'll go ahead and read this and then we'll, we'll try to get through this part um, in the Approximate 10 minutes that we have here. Because otherwise I'm going uh, probably too slow. <laughs> All right. So, the thanksgiving and prayer. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As a deed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from um, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, 
So that's Paul's thanksgiving. It's, to, it's why he's giving thanksgiving. Giving. So right off the bat, um, Paul says, we always thank God. And why does he say this? Well, Paul is, is overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Part of the new life that Christ gives us is this thankfulness. Our thankfulness is always the lead. And here, this is what Paul does. I thought this was fascinating thinking about. Uh, Martin Luther kind of gives this instruction as well on what we lead, what we lead our prayers with. Think about it. And the first thing we do in the morning, Martin Luther teaches us is first to say, right when we wake up, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, right? When we go to bed, what, what does Luther tell us to say? I thank you, my Heavenly Father. And that's what Paul Paul's doing here. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for you. Right off the back, we give thanks to God. And that's what we do as well. Um, in verse 3 here, We've also got Paul right off the bat saying we always give thanks to God. And then he qualifies it, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the term Father and Lord here, Paul right off the bat is acknowledging what? The Trinity. The Trinity, the Trinitarian character of God. So when we think God, we're thinking God in the Trinitarian aspect of it. When Paul talks about Father here, he denotes the loving relationship of God to Christ and which Christ bestows upon believers through the Holy Spirit. Father, when I was thinking about this, reminds me of actually uh, the Lord's Prayer when we, we go through the Lord's Prayer in the Catechism. And it, when we talk about our Father who art in heaven, the Catechism says, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that He is our true Father and that we are His true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask Him, as dear children ask their Father. And that's uh, the same aspect that Paul is using it here. But then Paul does say, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as uh, you all know, um, we have a Lord in this is uh, it's uh, it's actually not the reference to Yahweh because it's not an all in capital. If you guys remember my name class when I talked about the name, if it's all in caps, it's talking about Yahweh and that's the divine name of God. But just because the reference to the lower ca- uh, case cap, um, it really is looking at it in this sense that that um, Paul off the bat is talking about Jesus is in fact. Lord, it's the title of God then. It's the master and king. Even though Jesus also is Yahweh, Paul is also saying that in addition to Yahweh, Jesus is go as God is, is also the master and the king. And this is the true title of God, and now it's being given to Jesus. Applying Lord to Christ is Paul's customary way of designating Jesus as divine. And of course, he does that right off the bat here. Um, Paul then says, uh, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, Paul doesn't know these people, right? I talked about it at the beginning, but here he is praying for himself. 
So Paul, he's acknowledged that even though he doesn't know them at the beginning, he called them an apostle. He is their apostle. So he shows himself here to having been one regularly for those within his care, which these um, people are from Colossa. He's praying for them. And then he says here, to back up the point about not necessarily knowing them, he says, when, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith, again, since we heard indicating Paul may not have really know, knew them face to face, but is being reported to them about their faith. Okay. Now in verse 4 here, there's three terms that I really want to focus on. In verse 4, we see, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We've heard this before in other Paul, Paul's writings, right? Faith, love, and hope. This is, we, is really an outline of Paul's thinking. It's Paul's pattern. Faith, hope, and love. Paul really is always thinking in these three things. And what are they when Paul says this? So Paul talks about faith. He gives us our Lord's doctrine. That's the faith. Love is our life. And then hope is the endurance in the midst of persecution. And really these, if you think about it, these are the three pillars of the Christian life and teaching, right? It's our faith, it's our love towards our neighbor, and our hope, our hope. Um, so faith, when Paul says faith here in Christ Jesus, this is a huge theological concept. Um, faith in Christ Jesus, it's not just faith in Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is his faith, which is yours as you are in Christ. You see, that's a big distinction. It's not our faith that we have, we do on our own in Christ. But what it is, it's the faith that's been given to us as a gift from Jesus. And it's faith by which an individual believes. And I'm taking this out of the, um, I am going to some, some doctrine here. It's the Apology of the Augsburg Confession uh, for on justification and this is what the apology says so, not just faith in Christ but it is this faith by which an individual believes that his or her sins are remitted on account of Christ and that God is reconciled and gracious on account of Christ so this concept of faith in Christ is more than just a, your own faith in Christ it's a gift which is given to you in which you also believe in Christ's works, what Christ has done for you, and that you are, in fact, reconciled to God on account of Christ and Christ alone. Love, then. The term love, of course, here in the Greek, it's the agape love. I know there's a lot of distinctions on it, this, but really when we see it here, this term, agape love, the common New Testament term as this is used is really this. God's undeserved love for fallen humanity. But in addition, Paul's use here of love, as he talks about it to the Colossians, 
is the love for one's fellow believers in Christ, which are the other saints. It is undeserved love, for fellow saints will not always deserve to be loved. God's love, then, is the basis for our love. For Paul, such love is the way in which faith is active. That's the Christian life. And then he mentions hope. And hope is really the trust with the certainty that God will fulfill his promises. This picture of hope here that Paul paints, it really emerges from the Old Testament. And it is that of a certain trust in God who grants safety and the promise of eternal security so as to produce a waiting with endurance. And that's the three pillars, faith, love, love. So on that, I think uh, maybe we should uh, stop there because we're going to kind of move into the word of truth and the gospel um, in verses 1 through 5 through 7. So that's kind of an introduction, a look at what Paul was meaning by his greeting and then why he was giving thanks uh, for the Colossians. Um, Any questions at this point? All right. Thank you very much, and the Lord be with you.